I just have a, a comment, and I'm very grateful that you're giving the class because I've had the book for years and I never looked at it. And now I'm reading it all the way to the end. It's, it's just marvelous. Yeah, it's an, sort of a, uh, I don't want to say little-known gem, but it's certainly a gem, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, just, it's just so varied and so fascinating. Okay. Anyone else with comments? Okay, we are on number 22, conversation number 22. Thank you. Several of the monks were reading the lives of saints. At this time, the master gave us the, follow us, the following recommendation as to what we should read of those lives. Read the lives only of those in our own line, St. Francis of Assisi, for example, and St. Teresa of Avila. His expression, those who are in our own line, was one I pondered for a long time. The master could not have meant those who are directly connected with our line of gurus, for we'd have no way of knowing who such persons were. He can only have been referring then to saints who had attained deep states of inner communion with God. Not all saints, certainly, even among those canonized by the church, belong in this higher category. In fact, many saints who are canonized by the church are canonized for a wide variety of reasons, some of which have to do with their deep spirituality, some of which don't. (laughs) Um, So that in itself is an indicator of some kind of spiritual nobility. Um, This is something that, you know, we've discussed this with Swami at different times, and he's never been able to add any more to it than what he's said right there. Um, there's, There's two pieces of instruction here, and the first piece is that Master himself did not feel that all spiritual input was equally help, helpful. And certainly when you start reading the lives of many different saints, uh, not only of the Catholic tradition, but even yogis of various kinds, you get all kinds of different ways of, of going towards spirituality, um, even just symbolized by such a thing as those who grow their hair long and those who keep their head shaved. I mean, because some people grow their hair long because then that draws energy in, and other people keep their head shaved because they want to just have no influences. They want to be completely in themselves. Some people are very austere. Swami Kriyananda, you know, made beautiful places and would go out, um, you know, go out to dinner and would sometimes watch movies and like to travel and was interested in many things. Other yogis just live like Sri Teshwar did. Here's my tiger skin and this is the only thing I'm looking for. And it's not as if each path doesn't have its own validity, but when you finally do find the path that you're on, the the nuances of it are extremely subtle. And it's not really that you can just take a little here and take a little there, even of inspiration uh, from other saints. And that's why Master was even cautioning us, even very great souls just might not have a vibration or a teaching that's really helpful to us. I myself have read a lot of saints through the years, um, but I think in, instinctively I've, I've stayed more in those who had a, a balance between um, uh, inner communion and service. And there's also, when you, when you use the two examples that he gave, so that's one side of it, which is um, I could be very dogmatic about how narrow you should draw the lines for your inspiration until you're solidly grounded in master's vibration. 
Because until you're solidly grounded in that vibration, it can very easily be diluted. When you're, when you're stronger in it, then you can take in more influences more easily. When I, in the 70s, I had a, a, a little medallion that someone had made for me. It was uh, the business that Benai used to have making with manzanita. He would make little frames out of manzanita and then put dried flowers or something in them. And he, he made one. I don't know if it was just for me or whether they were for sale. I don't recall. Had Master's picture on one side and Ananda Ma's picture on the other. And Ananda Ma is, you know, there's a chapter on her in Autobiography of a Yogi. And Swami Kriyananda spent a great deal of time with her. So certainly she's someone who is um, in tune with our path. But I found in some subtle way I could feel it was not helping me to wear her picture on my mala. It was just too close and I was too new. And it just and so I took it off and gave it to someone else who, who could enjoy it and for whom the relationship was just simply different. They weren't as serious on this path as I was, actually. So it didn't matter to them. But it was interesting to me that I could feel it. And I went, as soon as I, something, I worked, there was something wrong. And then I took it off and then I felt better. Um, I, I don't think I would ever wear her picture, but certainly I've read many of her books and have been deeply inspired by everything that she's done and find her a great inspiration. But you always have to think about it. Where is it drawing me? Is it in, and so... When Master says that, it's something to be taken very seriously. Um, St. Francis, St. Teresa of Avila, um, someone asserted that Gyanamata had been Teresa of Avila in a previous lifetime. Swami said it seemed like a reasonable supposition to him. He never heard it verified in any way that he would say was true, but the way she was matched very clearly the way St. Teresa was. Also, St. Teresa when of Avila um, just served heroically until the end of her life. And Gyanamata just really didn't have very much work to do. She had, in fact, she had no work to do. She raised her family and then she helped a little, you know, at Mount Washington. And then the last 20 years of her life, um, she was mostly confined to her room. She was often ill. Not, not all those 20 years, but in the end of her life, she couldn't do anything at all. But Swamiji said she really had very little outward work to do. And one of his verifications why she might have been, it doesn't really matter, was because all that work had been done. It was just finished now. Now she, There was nothing left of that kind for her to balance. Many people have asserted, just as speculation, that Swami Kriyananda might have been St. Francis. And we find it interesting that Ananda took itself to Assisi. Of course, Assisi is the spiritual heart of Italy. And as Swami said, if you're going to be in Italy, where else would you want to be? And also, of course, the vibrations. When we were very first starting our work, the vibrations of Assisi, you know, um, amplified everything that we do because the power of the Spirit is so strong there. In fact, it's not possible that Swami was St. Francis because the life of Francis overlaps with the life of Alfonso X. And Alfonso X, Swami said, that was he. Now, so it's not, I'm not bringing it up to say, whoa, isn't that exciting? But what's very interesting and why people assert that Swami might have been Francis is because the way they approach the spiritual path is so much the same. Um, uh, Francis was very joyous, very free, very natural, very spontaneous, and totally creative. I mean, he, he created a whole new order. He created a whole new approach. He created the, the whole uh, midnight Christmas Eve worshiping of the baby Jesus in a, in a live crash scene 
was actually created by St. Francis. It's just, it was an inspiration he had, you know, to, to create more devotion for the birth of Christ. So he surprised his brothers by setting up in the woods this living creche, and he invited them on Christmas Eve, one, one midnight on Christmas, without telling them, you know, to come and see what he had done, and the townspeople. And of course, it was such a hit, they repeated it every year. Francis wrote the first poem in the Italian language and wrote the beautiful melody, Brother Sun, Sister Moon, that whole lovely canticle to creatures, that's the word. Swamiji said he was trying to write for years uh, a melody for that poem. And finally he received a, 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 a version of it in old Italian. He said, but the, the lines were all completely different lengths and it was just impossible. And then he prayed to Francis, what did this sound like? And he, he said he had a, I, I, I don't know if I will say the word vision, but I think perhaps vision. He saw Francis at the very end of his life when he wrote this poem, when his eyes were um, very diseased and in, in, in a great deal of pain. And Francis was standing with his cowl, mostly over his eyes, leaning up against a tree, singing the song. And that's how Swami got the melody, as he heard it. He heard it being sung, and he just wrote down what he heard. So there's obviously a, a lot of uh, vibrational similarity. But that in itself sort of tells us what it means to be in our line. Swami puts it, those who had deep communion with God and weren't just saints because they martyred themselves for the church or um, they were heroic during the plague or various other things which are no small accomplishments. By no means am I saying these are not important things, but what gives them power to inspire us, I would say, is that combination of inner communion and outward service and, above all, joy. There's another quality that I, that I think is also really important here. Is I, used the, I used it once already, creativity. Um, artistic creativity, conceivably, but also... Master's path is is very creative, and especially the way Swamiji gave it to us. When Master came to America, he just had to make it all up. He had the tradition of Sanatana Dharma, Sri Yukteswar had taught it to him, but so much of what went over big in India was just not going to work in America. Um, Even starting with uh, his friend telling him, you know, you either have to have long hair or beard, you can't have both. You have to just tone yourself down a little bit so the Americans will be able to relate to who you are. And when there's a, 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 a mailing that comes, an email that comes in every day, it's called this, On This Day in History. If you're not signed up for it, you can go to ananda.org and somehow or another I think you can find it there. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's primarily based on the research of John Parsons, who was our attorney for our lawsuit and is also back in uh, the 90s but also became a student of Yogananda history. And when he wrote a book, his book about the fight for religious freedom, he put a lot of, of Yogananda's history in there. And he, he made it his, his uh, interest, his hobby, was to find out as many um, facts with dates about Yogananda's life as he possibly could. So on, on this day in 1929, on this day in 1935, and this day in 1947, and it'll say where Master was and what he was doing if, if there is something to be known. Um, but one of the most amazing things when you read through is the, the different topics that Master talked about. 
from spiritual marriage to magnetizing money to true Hinduism to America and India unite for the good of the world. Where does world peace come from? What happens when you die? Are, you know, are ghosts real? It just, and there was no restraint at all. It was just everything that he could possibly think of that would influence people. And he went to you know, the women's club, the men's club, the lion's club, the rotary club, this church, that church, this literary society, just everywhere in every city, anybody who would listen to him, he made up some topic for them to talk to. And you can just see him standing up there, you know, in front of 20 ladies for their hour lunchtime meeting in front of the businessmen, in front of the Chamber of Commerce in Rochester, New York, or wherever he was, just standing there talking about the spiritual path with whatever was needed in order to serve those souls. He didn't just stay in this very orthodox line and kind of take it or leave it. In fact, he came under criticism. People, Indians in America, wrote back to Sri Yukteswar, criticizing Yogananda for what they thought was a kind of a selling out of the teachings, you know, Americanizing it, materializing it. And that's where there's that exchange between Sri Yukteswar and Master, where, where Master has to say to Sri Yukteswar, you know, you're, you just work with the pure gold, but I have to make it into jewelry. So I have to add a little alloy to the pure gold in order to be able to shape it in such a way that people can relate to it. You, one may wonder, why did Master have to say that? Master had to say that because people were criticizing him and telling his guru that, you know, he'd fallen now that he was in America. I mean, people are jealous and small-minded everywhere. Master, one of our things today, also talks about that. But that's how he had to put it. But what he was, you see, was immensely creative, immensely creative. Today, it says something about Master was holding a Yagoda baptism ceremony. Somebody wrote, yeah, what is a Yagoda baptism ceremony? Who knows? 1929, he had a Yagoda baptism ceremony. Does anyone remember what city it was in? Anyway, wherever it was, you know, what was that? But it was just something that he thought would uh, be a way of getting the teachings across. So that's part of what characterizes people who are in our line, is they have a very joyous and very expansive idea of what's possible. And also just this kind of general artistry. It's very interesting to read about the life of St. Teresa of Avila, because these are uh, one that's mentioned. Teresa reformed her order, which is meant to say, she saw what it was, and she did not like what it was, and so she went and created something completely different, which in and of itself is pretty creative. And she just she made up. She made up a rule, just as Francis did. Francis didn't like what was going on. There was no um, order of monks that he felt reflected what he wanted to do for Jesus. So he just started his own. And, and he kept it very, very simple. Eventually it was all incorporated and became something other than what Francis started. But when Francis started, he had an extremely clear idea, and he just held to it, no matter what. And he kept it very simple, and it was all about the essentials. Does that sound like Swami Kriyananda? Does that sound like Ananda? Where you end up having to do what you have to do, but it's always just about the essential elements. Well, St. Teresa, she started these cloistered monasteries, uh, convents with 12 nuns, perpetual cloister. I mean, this was a time when, you know, especially for women... You know, you married, you basically were owned, first you're owned by your father, then he bargains you out to someone, and then you get to be owned by your husband, and then you just bear children pretty much until you die. 
it wasn't a very interesting time to be a woman. So women who had an intention other than that, the religious life was an option. Of course, it wasn't so. There was also very gracious ways to live, and people are always the same. And many marriages, were, I'm sure, were uplifting and filled with love, but it was a hard time for women because of the childbearing, always. So if you didn't want to have that be your life, your, your alternative basically was religious orders, unless you had a strong will and could establish something else. So she, she created this whole way for women, and, and she wanted it to be very, very simple. Very simple. But she also had a very aesthetic sense. And I, in one of the biographies that I read of her, it, it talked about how carefully she constructed the architectural proportions of the buildings that she used, and even though the design was always very simple, she was very exact about the harmony that she wanted to be there because this would be the, the home for these women for the rest of their lives. And she understood that every aspect of it was important. And even though they had very little, this is a touch that I love so much, they had a few pieces of beautiful blue pottery. So that in the midst of all this simplicity, there was just from time to time, there was this, you know, this beautiful bit of color. It was just, it was all so sensitively done. And of course, that's, that's the energy that carries through with Master. Master makes the golden lotus towers um, at the shrine to all the religions in uh, Encinitas, um, excuse me, at Lake Shrine. And then at Encinitas, he put those golden lotus towers up there. I mean, why was that necessary? You see, on, on some other um, attitude toward it, you just have a, a, day, a, a door or a gate. But Master wanted these white columns with these golden lotuses on the top because he had this expansive idea of what he was doing and how he was going to reach people. And it was nothing that had ever been done before. Now, this isn't to say that there is no saint in the world who isn't in tune with us or has been associated with our path that doesn't live differently. But these are salient characteristics of our path. And when we find ourselves, and this is one of the ways to tell, you know, how much reading beyond the narrow confines of our masters and of Swamiji is helpful to us, is when you begin to doubt some of the fundamental characteristics of what this path is about. And even as we live it through Ananda, which is very different than it's lived through SRF, you know, it becomes quite specific that Swami Kriyananda is the window through which master's energy flows to us and so we have to think about how we can stay in tune to us if we want to, if we want to be in tune with it. You're not going to go to hell if you're not. But if you, if you want to be in tune with it, you have to realize that it's, um, it's a conscious decision on many levels that you make continuously as to how closely and how deeply aligned you're going to be with this. Because you can, it's, it's many, many concentric circles. And you can come through a few of those circles but not necessarily continue all the way to the heart of it. And whether you continue all the way to the heart of it is really a decision you make long after you take your discipleship initiation. Your initiation is not an automatic salvation. It's not like the dogmatism of, well, it's a Christian dogma as I understand it. You know, you accept Jesus Christ and now you're saved. That's that. Well, that's pretty handy, isn't it? Then, as Swami said, it's just a matter of how bad can I be and still be saved. But with us, it's every, every time it's a choice because it's always a question of your vibration. And we have the free will either to draw closer, either to stop where we are, which means that we slightly go backwards, 
or to or you know just to say this this much is all I want. I remember a let me think what her name. There was a woman who for a period of time was with us and and then she decided she would take a job at East West. This was many many years ago. And she did not last long at all. She really did not like it. She thought she would love having a 24-hour-a-day relationship with her spiritual path. But she realized that she didn't really enjoy that, (laughs) that she really liked having a big piece of her life not be under the bright light of uh, spiritual awareness. It was a perfectly honest decision, and there was nothing to say except, okay, if that's what you want. But we also have to just really realize what we're doing. And, and it's better to be honest in our reality than to be either ashamed or self-deceiving. So, or, we, or we just work, as, we, as it says later here, we work from our experience. We just start where we are. We just keep experimenting. I mean, I wore a Nanda Ma's picture for a while until I felt something was a little off. Swami t- tells a very interesting story, speaking of that, of uh, many years ago in India, well, it, must, it was... I don't think it was in 1962, so it must have been after 1972 when he went back to India. There was some uh, yogi who was through Lahiri Mahashaya's line and offered Swamiji to teach him more, uh, more levels of Kriya than and he'd learned from Master because his time with Master was so short and he hadn't progressed to that point. And so Swami thought, well, this is Kriya, you know, and then it turned out that in order for him to be taught those um, higher kriyas, he would have to go through an initiation ceremony with this yogi. So Swami meditated on it again and thought, well, you know, this is Lahiri Mahashaya's kriya. This is, what, this is what we do. And if Master had lived longer and I'd lived longer with him, I would have learned more of this. I don't think he was talking about the initiations that we do. This was more than that. So he said, all right. And he took it, and he learned, and he started practicing. <clears throat> he said, as soon as he did that, he, he didn't realize this until six months later, he started feeling out of tune. And six months later, he said he felt so uh, out of tune, and when he stopped to really contemplate it, he realized that it had begun when he'd taken that initiation because of the thought that he needed to go anywhere but to master for what he needed. And he, and he said he intensely repudiated the initiation and the practices. And he said in that instant he felt the attunement returned to him. So it's not as if we can't, we don't, experiment and find out. But it's also very interesting. Even if it looks obvious, it's not obvious. That was, there's a story in my, uh, the book about Swami, Swami Kriyananda, as we've known him. It's a story Diana told. She said, Diana, she said, uh, she was very new on the path. She was living, I think, in actually Palo Alto. We lived, had a house in Atherton. And she was taking some kind of Reiki course at that point. Her, her explanation is she was very, very new. And she was in the car with Swami, and she was telling him about how fabulous this Reiki course was and all that she was learning and how marvelous it was and like this. And Swami said, well, perhaps I should take it, which is also something that uh, Master refers to later. And Diana's immediate response was, oh, Swami, you don't need it, like that. And that was it. That was the whole exchange. She said about ten years later, it occurred to what had happened there. 
which is that the reason she felt Swami didn't need it is because she knew he got everything he needed from Master. And she saw that in herself, she hadn't really accepted her discipleship without much commitment. And actually, it wasn't, I don't think it was 10 years later, I think it was less than that. But she suddenly realized that she was still running here and there thinking she needed. But when Swami offered, it was so ludicrous for him to take it. But it took her a long time to see the implications. Why? Why did he not need it? So we just all have to learn from experience. There's no other way. And it's it's very important, as we say in one of these, it's coming up soon. You have to be absolutely true to your own experience. Because this is not a dogmatic church in which you take it on faith. Okay, any comments or thoughts about that? Swami did not uh, try to explain anything about that at all. But the just no, he just said, oh, maybe I need it. That's right, that's it. Hmm. He could have explained it, but it wouldn't have been already good. Right. We don't learn with words. <laughs> okay, number 23. A visitor, the master told us, asked me yesterday, who made God? Many ask that question. That is because they live in the realm of causation. Everything to their way of thinking must have a cause, since that is how everything happens in this world. God, however, is the supreme cause. He has no need of being caused or created. He is the very cause of causation. The truth is, nothing is really created anyway. The Spirit simply manifests the universe. Ultimately, nothing causes anything, for nothing in actuality is ever happening. Oh dear, I feel like we're at the end of the Patanjali Yoga Sutras again. (laughs) I was trying to think about the difference between something being created and something being manifested. And I don't think that it is something that we can really grasp so hard with our minds. But the only thing I could think of was a little bit of what I was doing that other Sunday with the finger puppets, where you have you're just your own hands are doing things, and it appears that something else, something separate from that fundamental reality has been created. I was also thinking of the way you can, um, you know, you can make shadows and make them seem like monsters. And so you're moving your hands in certain ways, and if, it, if it's on a screen, you see all these different things happening. And so this has manifested all of that, but that is nothing but this. So there's nothing, some, nothing separate has been done. It's just the movement here. Even just if the hand goes like that, you know, there was nothing separate created. It was just from the central energy of who we are, we move. And so we're manifesting in a certain way. I'm manifesting my, you know, a gesture like this. But it's not, it's not separate from its source. It's just coming out from the source and moving in that certain way. I have no idea if that's even accurate, but I was trying to, just for myself, just trying to think, what is the difference? Because they often talk about, there's one of our Sunday service things every, every year that says, did God uh, create the universe or did he become it? Right. And it's always the short straw when you end up on that Sunday. <laughs> and then I usually try to find some tiny little deflected point that I can just run on because I don't know. <laughs> and it's a very, very hard thing to get your mind around. Um, the other thing about 
one thing causing another. Somewhere else, Master says, we believe because things appear to happen sequentially, we imagine that one thing causes another. He just leaves it like that. They appear to happen sequentially, so we think that there's a cause and effect relationship. But in actuality, everything is happening at the same time. My friend was talking to me yesterday, or the day before on Sunday, and she, she was, we were talking about time, and she was talking about the necessary condition for us to perceive time is that the mind has to be oscillating. Because it's, you know, it, there has to be this, you know, I, it goes to this side and then it comes back to this side. There has to be movement in order for there to be a sense of, of one thing causing another. And Master writes, she was telling me, that when the, when the mind becomes absolutely still, then simultaneously you slip into a timeless zone. Because if nothing is, if there's no oscillation, then everything just becomes one and there's no, there's nothing to relate to anything else and therefore there's no time. Time is depending on a relationship. It can't be tomorrow if it wasn't yesterday. And it can't be caused by this if there was only one reality. That's the best I can do. You know, these are, you, these are questions that you just can hammer on with your intellect as long as you like, but you'll never get anywhere. It's nice to be able to think about it a little bit. Um, the implications of it are important because if... To be created by God is nice <laughs> because then we have an intimate relationship with our Maker. To be manifested by God, to be a manifestation of God... Um, puts you in a position where there was never any separation. And it also means that there is no reality in us except the reality of spirit. So much of religion, speaking of Christianity, going back there, we were made awful and now we need to be saved. We're sinful and we need to be saved. The sacrifice of Jesus saved us from our natural sinfulness. It's completely different from we're just the hand of God moving in a particular way. I mean, think how it would really feel inside our own consciousness if our very self-definition was just nothing but a ray of the divine moving in a certain way. That's how I, I was thinking about, I was at the Moksha Mandir on uh, Sunday, the place where Swami's body's buried at Ananda Village. And... I was remembering uh, my, the image that I had right after Swami died. And I was in Assisi right after he died, when his corpse was right there in front of us. Um, I was trying to feel it from his point of view, not from the point of view of infinity, because I didn't know how to go there. But there was an enormous... Um, vibration of energy created when he stopped breathing. Just, he stopped breathing, and, and once he had stopped breathing, you know, this, this force went out over the whole planet, and everybody was in, everybody's reality was shifted. Everybody was associated with him. Reality shifted. I mean, there I was, you know, sitting in Europe just 48 hours after he died. But I knew from his point of view he, his, his consciousness 
had gone so far into infinity long before he died that for him to stop breathing just wasn't the same event because it wasn't such a massive shift as it was for us. And that was the picture I had, which I'll remind you of because you may not remember. I, I pictured Swami's whole consciousness being like the infinite ocean, which is really how I always experienced him. And because most of us were not able to join him in the ocean, he, he was on the surface of the ocean, and I always thought of it as this little trap door, that he, he raised this little trap door from the surface of the ocean, and that was Kriyananda. And through that facade that looked like Kriyananda, he poured the energy, what energy he could bring up and give to us, he poured it out through that opening. And when he stopped breathing, he just closed the opening like that. But, that, but his reality was still the ocean. He just closed that little material heartbeat breath. Because that's really what, was, what he was. He was just a heartbeat and breath at that point. That's all it was. And he just closed. He closed ever so gently. He died so effortlessly. You know, he just, he was there and then less than 10 minutes later he wasn't. Just like that. On here where all of us were sitting, an enormous amount had happened. But I don't think that much happened for him. I think he just, he just relaxed the heartbeat and the breath. He just stopped being responsible for the heartbeat and the breath. And now if we know ourselves to be this infinite ocean that's just breathing and beating its heart right here, instead of being this personality and this past and this present and these relationships and these disappointments and these longings and these accomplishments and these fears and these pains and there's this, but instead we're just the spirit breathing, beating its heart. How different that is. So, that's why so much of the spiritual path comes down to breath. And, and that's why those two things, you know, the yogi can stop his heart and stop his breath without exiting his body. Because that's, that's what keeps you in this world. And if they can just stop it, like Master could, bring it out again, stop it. And then maha samadhi, the last time you stop it, you don't bring it back again. But if, if the, the more we bring our uh, self-definition just to the breath. That's what Kriya is, just the breath and then the heart. Wonderful, isn't it? Everything gets so simple. Swami Shankarananda, um, a Kriya yogi through Sri Yukteswar's line directly. Um, I mean, without going through Master, but through a disciple of Sri Yukteswar. He gave us a whole class. He was a guest at Ananda Vilja. He gave us a whole class about Kriya. And I was extremely curious as to what he could teach us. I, I remember Swami Satchitananda, who's a disciple of Shivananda, who's passed away now. Satchitananda was very popular at the Integral Yoga Institute. And we were hosting Satchitananda one year when Swami Kriyananda was out of the country. And um, he was a friend, and we had a lovely time together. And then he gave a satsang that night, and... His compliment was so 
elegant. He sat in front of us and he said, I'm not really sure what I can talk about tonight because I can't think of a single thing that Swami Kriyananda has failed to teach you. Just beautiful. You know, just the perfect way to be a guest. You know, with absolute respect. And then he talked. You know, he, he did not try to teach us. He just shared, you know, happy, fun things with us because he saw, one, it was inappropriate, and two, he saw it wasn't necessary. So when I saw Swami Shankarananda, because he's also a very refined man and, and a very conscious man, and so I knew he was going to behave appropriately, but I was curious. But he gave his entire satsang just on breath. But not on pranayam, just on the fact of breathing. It was fascinating. And it just, it just, he just said, Don't, whenever your life gets complicated, let go of everything. Because as long as you just breathe, that's all you actually ever have to do. Amazing when you think about it. Because also you see the... Um, quality of your breath is profoundly influenced by the calmness or agitation of your mind. So when our minds are agitated by all the vrittis and all the karma and all the longing and all the regrets and all the delusion of cause and effect and all the illusion of time, think about it. Everything that you're upset about, it's all dependent on those facts, isn't it? But if we just come back to the single responsibility that if I'm simply breathing... And the more consciously we're breathing of, of, of necessity, when we do the Hong Sa technique, we are instructed not to influence the breath, but the very fact of concentrating on it has the effect of calming the mind and therefore calming the breath. So just in, in the midst of agitation, just coming back to the calmness of that breath and just living there, then actually everything else takes care of itself. That's what he was explaining to us. And Kriya, of course, is just using that breath in a very much, even more conscious, because it's using the actual breath, which is the inner, the, the inner energy of which the physical breath is just a manifestation. I saw a quotation from Master um, on some poster or something. It was so simple. It said, Make every moment joyous, and your whole life will flow effortlessly. And I just really thought about that. Just take care, I mean, take care of the minutes. That's what Yogananda said. Take care of the minutes and incarnations will take care of themselves. So because we are a manifestation of God and we only imagine that one thing causes another, but it doesn't really. It's all happening at the same time. It's, 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 um, it's fun. Okay, any comments or thoughts or questions on that one? Okay, number 24. Huh. Swami just, you know, goes from here to there. Now we're talking about Ralph killing rabbits. The master was reminiscing with me about his early years in America. Ralph, he, saw, he said, was a man who chauffeured me on my first cross-country lecture tour. There was another driver with us also, Arthur Cometer, who was a good and sincere devotee. Um, Mr. Cometer visited Mount Washington shortly before the end of Master's life, and I had the opportunity to meet him there. Ralph, on the other hand, continued the Master, was arrogant and had a skeptical nature. So Master must have hired him to show for him, is the only thing you can figure. Or maybe he volunteered, who knows. When he drove on country roads, he would go out of his way to run over rabbits, killing them. 
He refused to listen when I asked him to stop doing so. I then warned him, you'll draw a severe karmic test for the heartless slaughter you are committing. Oh, yeah, prophet, he sneered. Leave off, I'm having a good time. You'll see, I repeated very seriously, your action is an offense against karmic law. One day, all of a sudden, I ordered him to stop. So firm was my tone of voice that he obeyed. The car had barely come to a halt when a wheel rolled off. It had been working itself loose. If we hadn't stopped just at that moment, we would have had a serious accident. After this experience, Ralph stopped his sadistic entertainment. Because of Ralph's skepticism, I played up to it, hoping to draw the delusion out of him. We talked about this a lot last week. Hoping to draw the delusion out of him. Before giving a lecture, for example, I would primp, combing my hair with exaggerated care and pretending in other ways to be inordinately vain. Whoever comes to me finds me a mirror to whatever is in his heart, Master said. Thus I try to help him to see qualities in himself that he needs to overcome. In Ralph's case, I wanted to bring out his vanity so he could see it clearly and work to overcome it. From my, uh, Kriyananda's, understanding of this, this account, the end of Ralph's story may, may have to await telling at a later date. For so far as I know, he played no further role in Master's life. I did, however, see the Master sometimes play up to people's delusions, exaggerating them in order to bring them to a head and thereby free those people of their errors. In some cases, the healing process took a very long time. I remember him telling one disciple, I lost sight of you for a few incarnations. He then added a deeply inspiring promise, but I will never lose sight of you again. Reflecting also on the unusual promptness with which Ralph attracted his karmic retribution, I realized that the master had simply allowed the karmic law to operate without without what he called an autobiography of a yogi, referring to Trilanga Swami, the thwarting cross-currents of ego. It is against karmic law to take life in any form with deliberate intent and without cause, especially for mere sport. People who engage in what they like to call the sport of hunting would do well to reflect on this truth. How innumerable indeed are the lessons implicit in the least words and actions of a great master. Well, let's take a little break before we go into that one. Okay, we're on number 24. A great deal of this I dealt with last week because I had read ahead. Um, first, you just have the strange story of Ralph himself. Master said that nobody ever crossed his path without there being a reason for it. And this man drove all the way across the country with Master and helped him launch his first campaign and had the karma to be seriously injured or killed, perhaps, um, probably for not only for those rabbits, but perhaps for others. But Master was there to intervene to prevent it. So nothing is ever clear-cut. And, it's, it's, it, and he was skeptical, and he had such a chance to receive so much, and instead of receiving it, he was repudiating it. It's very, very confusing. You just don't know what to think. But 
also the other part of it would just be when there's a great force of light, it's never smooth sailing. There's always this, there's always something. So here's Master having to, you know, be in the car coming across the whole country with this man who's uh, so cynical. Yeah, sure, prophet. I mean, can you imagine? But Master was, what, not quite 30? He was just a very young man and uh, completely in a completely alien culture. Very strange. It's a very strange story from start to finish, including... Um, anybody deliberately killing rabbits. It's just... But there you have it. Um, the, the comment there that the karma came back to him right away, um, that's, we always used to say that instant karma is good karma because if it happens to you in the instant, you know what caused it and it comes right back to you. That's a great gift because then you can see the relationship. If it's if it's postponed by the thwarting cross-currents, if your momentum in the direction you're going is great enough to outrun those immediate consequences, then it's much more complicated when, you, when it comes to you because you can no longer remember having put those causes in. You have to take it then, either if you have the intuition or you have to just take it on faith. The karma is always fair and therefore whatever is happening to me is the, just the completion of energy that I myself started even if I no longer can remember starting it. But if you see it, bing, bing, like this, it's just absolutely perfect. I had this experience with Swami where I uh, was in India and I was, I was there and I, was, I, I had this just insatiable desire to go shopping at this particular shopping mall. And uh, it was complicated because it was more than I could walk to and I didn't have much and I'd, I'd finally managed to work things out so I had access to the car and the driver. And, I mean, it was just I was totally obsessed. But in the course of that day, I also did some really, really insensitive things that just, just caused a cascading series of difficulties that actually took years to resolve. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I, just, I was sitting at the dinner table with Swami. I said, Swami, I woke up this morning obsessed with my desire. I had, I had what I wanted and I just did not pay attention to anything else. I said, it's Maya's really tricky, isn't it? He said, yes. Just like that. But it was fascinating to me how I just, you know, just grabbed me. I just became obsessed in one direction. Oh, the karma. That's what I was going to say. But it was so fortunate that I was so off and that instantly the consequences, because well, I had done something extremely insensitive to Swami. Just, and I mean, I said, you know, usually I'm very sensitive to your reality. He says, I know. <laughs> you know this, was very, this was very unusual for you. I said, yeah, because I was just, I wanted something and I was just going to get it and I just lost everything else. But it just hit me in the head like that, which is good karma. Instant karma is good karma. Oh, I, I went off, I got smacked great. You get smacked four lifetimes later and you think somebody's you know, after you. You don't know why. So, he, so uh, Master got Ralph's attention and got him to stop doing that. That was something. You know, the story of uh, uh, the Tiger Swami in Autobiography of Yogi. I was thinking about the Tiger Swami when I read this where the Tiger Swami receives the message that the animal kingdom is quite upset with him. And that, you know, they've created a tiger that's really going to pay you back because of your arrogant karma here. And then, in fact, it, it, the prophecy came true. 
but you just put you just can't you can't behave in a wrong way indefinitely that's why you don't have to um, uh, you don't have to worry about anybody what they're doing or not doing because it all, it all works out in the end you don't have to participate just be very sympathetic let me see what else oh also this business about draw that delusion out of him um, bef- whatever, whoever comes to me finds me a mirror to whatever is in his heart thus I try to help him to see qualities in himself that he needs to overcome so while well, I was telling that story about Diana and Swami Diana is so excited about this other course she's taking and Swami says well maybe I should take it like this and all he was doing was just reflecting back to her exactly the energy she's putting out. Here we are, disciples of a great master. She's with Swami, who's a direct disciple, and she's spending all her time talking about this healing course she's taking. And so he just goes back with her. Oh, I'm so excited we're going to take this course. And it wasn't because he wanted to at all. He just wanted to show her what she looked like. And so here's Ralph, who undoubtedly was very vain himself. So whatever we judge in others is always in us. So he's judging Master in this certain way. So Master shows him what it looks like to be always concerned about your appearance. And the hope that, Master, uh, that Ralph would notice that it wasn't at all attractive. And he, he did notice it wasn't attractive because he didn't like it in Master. But he had to finish the circle and realize that the reason he was seeing it at all is because it was in himself to see it. Otherwise that wouldn't have even come. When Swami Kriyananda was accused during the worst of the litigation that we went through in, in the 90s, um, the, the second court uh, lawsuit we went through was a personal attack on him, and it accused him of abusing his position in every way a person could abuse their position. Dictatorial, sexual favors, financial mismanagement, power over others, um, just anything. You name it, they said he was doing it. And uh, Swami wasn't doing any of it. But what he said was, the people who were accusing him believed to the end that he was guilty, but that he was just clever enough to have gotten away with it. And then Swami said the most telling thing, because if they had been in my position, that's how they would have behaved. And they literally could not imagine that he would have access without taking advantage of it. And so that it just it wasn't it was nowhere in their consciousness. It was just a mirror. You just see exactly what you are. It takes goodness to see goodness. Remember children, you would say when someone would call you a bad name, you'd say, Take takes one to know one. Remember? <laughs> this one calls you fat or ugly or mean. Takes one to know one. Means gotta be you too. But there was a lot of truth in that actually. And so that's why we need to see each other as the masters see us, which is all they see is our divine potential. And the more we see, whatever you judge in others, it's always something in you. I mean, the way I I came to understand that is, if one has a quality in oneself that uh, one one wishes one doesn't have, uh, 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 an unattractive quality, if you don't know how to expunge it in yourself or even not even conscious that you have it, you try to expunge it from the whole universe. So when other people manifest um, greed or, or vanity or something, you become very judgmental and you try to get them to stop. 
You're trying to order them to stop doing it because you're trying to just suppress that quality everywhere in the false idea that if I can suppress it in the whole world around me, then I also will be free of it. But it's so odd because once it's not your problem anymore, it just, it, the whole world looks different to you. This world is just a mirror. It's a mirror upon the wall. Smiles back. If you smile, looks blue if you're blue. <laughs> and here's Master. He um, wants to bring that out in the hope that you would perceive it and overcome it. Uh, let's see. Swami said in another place that as much as possible, Master allowed us to play out our delusions. And, you, and just would, would let us just run it as far as we could run it, sometimes averting absolute disaster, sometimes letting disaster befall us. Because if that's the only way we could learn, that's all we could do. So let me see if there's anything else. I think that's it. Any other questions or thoughts about this? Yes, Larry. A little saying about what you were talking about. If you spot it, you got it. If you spot it, you got it. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, good slang these days. Swami never liked slang, but the one he really, he, he did like this one. Been there, done that. <laughs> that was one for some reason, I think the writer in him really appreciated that one. Okay. And, and that's actually very interesting because you do spot it and you forget. It's not that you, you see the difference between, this is what the next one is about, the difference between discrimination and judgment is the issue here. Because you can perceive things exactly as they are. And that's just the way they are. But there's nothing in you that needs it to be different. It, when, it, when you need it to be different, that's because it's inside of you. If you merely observe that it exists and you can say, hmm, the world would be a happier place if that wasn't happening, um, that's different. Number 25. Paramhansa Yogananda demonstrated no respectful solemnity toward religious practices that he considered false or merely emotional rather than devotional. Indeed, he could make very merry at their expense. He once told us laughing about a holy roller gathering he had witnessed. He had witnessed it. Now bear in mind, he must have been invited to the church, talking about all the different places Master went. So he goes to some holy roller religious function. Imagine... Master is there, and then they go into whatever it is that they do. I've never been in such a place. A woman, um, a woman friend of mine who grew up in a church like that, was raised in a church like that, where the, everybody would speak in tongues and dance in the aisles and roll on the floor. She was just mortified, as she said, by the entire scene. And she would sit there the whole time praying, because her mother was a little prone that way, just praying. Lord, please keep my mama in her seat. Please don't let my mama leave a few. <laughs> that was her way of being in church. Please, please keep my mama in the pew. <laughs> okay. Um, there they all were, fat ladies, old men, all rolling about on the floor in their zeal. They thought they were being inspired by the Holy Ghost, but what really moved them was the unholy ghost of emotions. He's pretty frank, isn't he? Devotion must be internalized. When it is allowed to flow outward, it becomes emotion. Emotional devotion, by its very exuberance, takes one further into delusion. Excitement only extinguishes the lamp of pure love. God, too, he commented, has a sense of humor. All men are his children. But why shouldn't he have fun when he sees them acting comically? I mean, it's just, it's very interesting, isn't it? 
Because Master, I mean, he wasn't, and Swamiji was like that too. Swamiji was often very frank, and people would get offended sometimes. Because Swamiji would just call it like he saw it. But there was no, it was always with the himsa, there was no malice in it. It was just, there they are rolling on the floor thinking they're inspired by God. And, and a lot of times people would feel they had to sort of justify what everyone was doing. And it, it, he wasn't judging. He was just commenting. You know, it's simply not a very advanced practice on the great scale of, of self-realization. Um, better they should be doing that than that they should be killing rabbits on the road. But still, it's, it's necessary for the yogi to be able to keep track of where we are. And this, is, this is a very important point because, you know, over the weekend, we were, um, there was a wedding, and as, as weddings happen, you know, people come from many different backgrounds to come together. And um, the uh, half of the, you know, one half of the couple had no experience at all of who we are, of what Ananda is and who we are. And they were they were astute enough to observe that we, we, we had a different, we had a, a, a very different way of accepting all paths. Because what, what most people do when they accept all paths is they actually tolerate other people and then are privately glad that they're saved and feel slightly sorry for the others who aren't. Like Swamiji was at some ecumenical thing in India where the Catholic got up and said, I'm so glad to be given the opportunity to talk about my Lord Jesus Christ. And Swami got up afterwards and he must have felt inspired by God to say this. Why well, call him yours? <laughs> I think he belongs to all of us. You know? But there's that, that undercurrent of just where we respect, we're nice, but we really know that our way is the best way and you know, we'll just be nice while you, you do your thing and then we'll go off and be right. But the way self-realization actually works is that we recognize that we're all on the path and everybody's experiencing it differently, but the fundamental truths behind all true religions are the same. And the fundamental truth behind everybody's aspiration is the same. We all want to escape suffering. We all want to find bliss. So it makes us completely different. We don't really tolerate each other we just, we honestly and truly accept one another. And it's a very fine line because you can just accept everything, see it for what it is, and not, not be, part of it is, you see, you have to be very secure in what you yourself know and believe. That you don't need everybody in the world to be just like you in order for it to be okay. Or you don't need it to be the absolute only way. I was on a radio program with a, the uh, interviewer was a youngish man and in off air before we started, I found out that he'd been a heroin addict who had gotten off drugs because of my Lord Jesus Christ. And he was very strict in his devotion and his concept of Christianity because Jesus had saved his life, and Jesus had saved his life. He was either a heroin addict or he was a fanatical devotee of Jesus. I thought that he was really on the upward swing there. But when on the air he started trying to demolish my spiritual path in favor of his, I was in a real dilemma. I was supposed to be there talking about the community, but he felt morally obligated to witness for Jesus Christ when he discovered that I was a heathen, which he didn't actually know until later. Um, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want to dispute him, even in the slightest, because it would just, I was so glad 
that he was not a heroin addict, but was now a fanatical lover of Jesus. I didn't want to say anything to touch it. You know, so I just, I just refused. I, I, I said, you know, in my world, there's room for both of us. In yours, there isn't room for both of us. I, I'm not going to talk about this. And then I went into silence. I just wouldn't say a word. We're on the live radio. I just wouldn't say a word <laughs> until he let the subject go and went on. But, you know, that's very different than just looking with tolerance and patting them on the head. But when you're that, when you are, as Master was, of course, of course as Master was, but just completely secure in, in your love, in your devotion, in your acceptance, in your view of God, just like he says, you can have a sense of humor and you can call it what it is. Have you ever seen anything so outrageous? I mean, just from his point of view. There's a story Swami tells, I don't think he was present, but it's, in, it's either in here or in one of the books, about Rajasi and Master being at some um, religious event in which the, the, the preacher had everybody marching around the chapel. Uh, I think it must have been an onward Christian soldiers, and they were all sort of um, being soldiers for God. I mean, the place his master found himself. And Swami just talks about how Master and Rajasi just smiled at each other, you know, just sat there blissfully just experiencing the whole thing. Why, why be upset, but why pretend? Well, they have just as much right to do what they're doing, and who's to say it's not? Well, there is a point of reference. And that point of reference is self-realization. And when devotion becomes too emotional, it extinguishes the inner light. It's, if it's better than being a heroin addict. That's certainly true. But let's not pretend that it's the same as doing Kriya, because it isn't. And, and, and why can't God have a sense of humor when his people behave comically? I think, is it, is it the very next one about um, the preacher in Harlem? There was a preacher many years ago in Harlem. The master told me he was well known as Father Divine. Father Divine once wrote me a letter suggesting that we team up. He signed his letter. He said, the letter said something like, we could do so much, you know, together. He signed his letter, I am healthy, energetic, and happy in every muscle, bone, molecule, and atom, <laughs> all capitalized. These last two words he underlined vigorously three times. His official chair, I was informed, bore the word God carved across the top. The master chuckled in amusement at the memory. You know, he, just, he was just charmed, but not fooled by such a thing. Is it in this book where there, there's the other story about that man? that somehow he was in some litigation, somebody was suing him for some reason, Father Divine, and in the middle of the case, the judge died, and Father Divine said, I hated to do it. <laughs> you see? Why not? But uh, Swami also tells that whole story in the path of the, the guest that was there for Master and who pretended, who thought he was a dancer and put on the big dance performance and just how terrible he was and that Swami and Master were next to each other and just suppressing their laughter. But just, it was so amusing. But afterwards, when the man complained that the musicians just weren't true artists like he was, Master said, I understand. And that's what Swami, it was just so touching the way Swami said that. And he did. See, that's, that's the whole thing. I understand. And he did understand. So when it's a matter of that soul's actual well-being, he, he didn't mock him, he didn't make fun of him. He had no need to. 
But when he's standing back and just watching the human comedy, well, there it is. And Swamiji would often, I mean, he would, he would make fun of us, you know, and you'd, you'd want to have your tender little foibles so protected. And uh, he didn't always protect them. And it upset people sometimes quite a lot because uh, they couldn't, they didn't understand. They were judgmental. And they couldn't understand how he could just be that way. Do you understand? It's, it was very interesting. And, you know, it wasn't like I didn't have to... Everybody struggled. It's very interesting. Right, let me see what else there might be on that one list there. No, that's it. Okay. Let's see. We do have time. We'll do one more. Number 27. Concerning Orthodox religion in America, the Master said, it needs improvement. (laughs) Talk about an understatement. Its present focus is on training the ministers intellectually. They learn to speak well, but don't meditate or try to attain spiritual realization. In our churches, the ministers are committed, above all, to their own self-realization. When I appoint someone a minister... I look first to see what degree of spiritual progress he made in a former life. The master then declared very seriously, we are on the eve of a great change in the churches. Real seekers will go there. The church will become a spiritual laboratory where people will be encouraged to test the teachings they receive and to judge for themselves what works and what doesn't work instead of accepting emotional declarations of untested dogmas. When Swami first wrote the oratorio, Christ Lives, he went on this campaign that went on for a couple of years of this great effort to bring that that music into the mainstream Christian churches as a way of presenting an entirely different understanding of Christ. And he had, everyone went out without any reference to Ananda, the composer was Donald Walters in the singing groups. We were just sort of this group of singers that had just appeared out of nowhere. And uh, people were assigned for a year or two the job of trying to, to set up programs with different churches and then take the performance out. And um, in the end, it, it fizzled. And Swami's comment was, well, I had to give them a chance. <laughs> is what he said. But he also said rather humorously, they have all that wonderful real estate. (laughs) You know, if we could have just converted them from the inside, wouldn't that have been more efficient, you know, than this tremendous effort we're having to make to work along parallel lines? But then he said, I knew it wouldn't work, but I had to try. It's a very interesting comment. Because Master also says we're on the eve of a great change. It wasn't that we didn't find ministers here and there. Before we had this church... Uh, when we used to do this, we used to do a huge event for Master's birthday. Cel- in celebration of Master, we do it at the end of, of January. and Put on a big program and often serve a full dinner and just have a whole thing. And we'd rent some facility somewhere. We mostly did it to give everybody a chance to work together and discover how much fun it was to bite off more than you can chew and chew it. So we rented uh, one year the Congregational or Methodist Church somewhere in Palo Alto. And it was a great facility and we really liked it. So I went back the next year. But he, the minister, who, who I didn't know, he wanted to talk to me before he lent it to us again. And he'd heard reports 
He actually had heard reports that we had a sacred cow. I mean, that's how crazy it got. No, I said, actually, we didn't. And then he started asking who we actually were. So I told him we were disciples of Yogananda, that he was a, a, from India, and he taught from the Bible and from the Bhagavad Gita. And I'll never forget this minister said. He doesn't call himself a Christian, does he? Whoa. Yes, I said. <laughs> Directly from Jesus, not through the churches. <laughs> to say the least, we never got to use the church again. Later, members of that church apologized to me for, their, for the narrow-mindedness of their own minister, who was no longer their minister at that point. But I mean, really, you know, my Lord Jesus Christ. But just, uh, now why would, I brought that up for a reason, let me think about it. Oh, minister's training. I have had the opportunity also because, not recently, although a little bit recently, but uh, before um, I was stationed here, for a number of years I traveled. And there were a lot of unity and religious science churches in the last 30 years. They're not nearly as many of them, and they're not as vibrant as they were for the most part. But I did a lot of, I, I got quite engaged with that group, and they often have outside speakers, and I, I became, and also I, would, I could fill in for Sundays and they could take a holiday. So I did a lot of traveling to those places. But my heart really went out to those ministers. Unity is a close teaching to ours. Religious science, which is now called Center for Spiritual Awareness, I think, or Spiritual Living, they don't call themselves religious science anymore. Um, very sincere people with a very similar philosophy. But nobody trained them to, to work from the inside. And I would see them, very sincere, good people, trying to figure out how to be inspiring. But they, they had learned how to prepare sermons. They had learned how to public speak, you know, to sing, to do certain things. But, but they had not been taught how to come from the inside. And I often thought during those years, you know, I wish I could offer a training course for their ministers because they're very sincere and it would help them. But of course, you have to back up and have a lot of other things in place. You have to really be coming from the inside out in order to make it work. And the one weekend I spent with Episcopal priests, which was arranged by two priests that I knew, it was the same thing. It was like um, they were very well educated, very bright. It was a fairly high level, high social level. And uh, very well educated. Many had divinity degrees from prestigious universities like you know Yale, Harvard, th- those kind of Stanford, PhD kind of divinity students. But they didn't... Uh, they, they didn't come from their own center. They didn't really even know where their center was. And you could see how frustrating it was for them because they knew that there was something else they were supposed to be doing, but they just didn't know quite how to access it. So eventually, Master says, we're on the eve of a great change where self-realization, because, you know, Judaism, Catholicism, unity, religious science, I mean, there's many beautiful expressions of self-realization. And the people who are culturally or karmically drawn to those things, you know, it's not necessary to abandon them. I mean, Hinduism, too, is no better off. Um, it's just a 
as one of my, my uh, Indian friends said, Hinduism is the only religion in the world where you have to pay someone to practice it for you. <laughs> Meaning you have to hire a pujari to do all your rituals and so on. And it's, it's just an odd way to put it, but that is exactly what you do. You pay someone to do, it's his profession, to do all these complicated things, and he's trained in it, and you do all the mantras just so, and the ceremonies just so, but where, where is your reality in all of that? So Master says it's going to change. We'll see. We'll see. And you know, much of what's taught is just, this is Swami's book, Revelations of Christ, where he, he just talks about the only people qualified to speak are those who have the consciousness. And that's what we have to turn to now. So, I think that will probably finish our night. So we did from number 22 through 27. So next week is 28.